1: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: So we're we're sitting here in the church. I'm with Dr. Miranda Kaufman. And, uh, well, the fact is we've got a sensitive issue to deal with here. It's sensitive in terms of language. Hi, by the way. Hello. Hello. We'll reveal now that the subject is uh, the history of, of black people in London. And I'm aware, even by saying the word black, that an American listener right now might uh, feel uncomfortable with that terminology. African-American is the conventional term, I think, for a person of colour in the US. But we're going to be using historically uh, accurate but uh, offensive, potentially, language here. What's the normal way that you find yourself um, dealing with these sort of issues uh, in terms of describing
3: well quite often i suppose i find myself making inverted comma signals while giving a talk uh, around because you know i think i mean i've also i mean i've attended uh debates in in london you know between people i mean there's a there's a there's a guy who lectures on the the african or black question and he very strongly advocates calling anyone of african origin african and leaving it at that um, and he doesn't—he doesn't like the term black at all. And black—it wasn't a term used very much in the in the 16th century to, to describe Africans at all. So I mean, I'm taking my cue from the original sources and the words that the Tudors and, and early Stuarts would have used at the time, and the ones that they would have been familiar with. And I sort of went back to the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, and looked up you know when these terms were first brought into the language. Uh, and so I suppose, you know, of all, in all the sort, the sort of 400 references to Africans in this period that I found, um, maybe the, you know, the most common term that was used at the time was, inverted commas, Balakamore. Uh, that was the kind of most anglicised um, w- way of describing someone from Africa. I mean, the, the geography of the time was a bit dodgy. I mean, they also used the term Ethiope uh, to pretty much refer to the entire continent. Uh, and... They, uh, you know, they also imported terms you know, from the Spanish. So, um, so the Spanish word uh, negro you know, is, is Spanish for black. And you know, it obviously has, uh, now has a very negative connotations. I, I think a lot of offence um, caused to anybody is usually to do with the tone and the context in which you use a word. And I hope that if I just stick to the words that were used at the time that people will understand that that's the, the context I'm using them in.
2: Okay, so there you have it. That's the, the longest disclaimer uh, in history, but um, I hope you get the idea that uh, we're going to be using some sensitive terms, but in, in uh, a positive and hopefully uh, sort of instructive and constructive fashion in today's episode, which comes from St. Olive's Church in the City of London.
4: Hey, baby, let me take you down So we'll play some strange sights sound You ain't never seen the light before Just as
1: Bye.
2: sun streaming in through the stained glass windows of St. Olaf's, St. Olives, St. Olives, it depends who you are, how you pronounce it. With me here is Dr. Miranda Kaufman, who is an historian and, and you research the history in particular of the black population of this country. With us also the Reverend Oliver Ross, he's the rector of St. Olaf's, St. Olives. On church, he's saying on others. and Phil Manning, the church manager here. Hello, all. Greetings. Hello,
4: lovely to see you. Hello. Thanks
2: for having us here, Oliver. We should start with a description of where we are in town, I think.
4: We're on the eastern end of the city, which is very much the insurance area of the uh, history of the city and the commerce. Uh, the church has been here since, well, first recorded at 1080. This building is 1450 and has seen the likes of Mother Goose buried here, as well as uh, Andrew Bacon, Francis Bacon's brother, and he was a spy for Walshingham. But most notably, it's known for being the burial place and the worship place of Samuel Pepys and his wife Elizabeth.
2: Now, as the uh, the listener will have detected, there is about 12 episodes worth of stuff just in what's been introduced here. I promise we're going to come back here with uh, your permission, gentlemen, and dig into some of that other delicious stuff. We're here, though, particularly to talk about the history of black people in London. And I know, Miranda, that's your specialist area. I suppose the, the first question is what's led you to look at the history of black people in, in the UK?
3: Oh, that's... A... Very difficult question. No, well, It's a question I get asked a lot, actually.
2: When I interviewed Clive Bettington, uh, who's a, a fascinating guy with uh, a head full of all the knowledge in the world in relation to the Jewish East End, and he's the, uh, the, the head of the Jewish East End Celebration Society, and he, he's not himself Jewish, and he mentioned that he sometimes encounters barriers put up by people of that faith who somehow see him as an outsider and r- aren't really willing to uh, let him in for, for reasons uh, best known to them. And I wondered if you find yourself uh, either encountering any such barriers or maybe in fear of meeting such barriers.
3: Um, I think there's always a fear, you know, that, that you want to be sensitive when when you talk to people because this is an ancient history. I mean, some of the issues involved are still very pertinent and really close to people's hearts. I mean, I, uh, I've i talked about this in various contexts at, you know, different academic conferences, but also sort of in Jamaica. And I, I mean, one... It, Experience that shows the the kind of problem, I suppose, is um, so. I was giving a lecture in which I mentioned an incident uh, that took place in Gloucestershire in 1597 when a an African servant called Edward Swarthy, that his surname was indicative of his skin color as well, uh, was uh, actually uh, ordered to whip a fellow servant whose name was John Guy, and I talked about that and how unusual it was, how interesting it was. And afterwards, this lady came up to me afterwards and she, she had dark skin. And she said to me, she said to me, I can't believe, I can't believe that, you know, when all we know about how many white people have whipped black people over the history of slavery, that you had to use one example and it was the other way around. And... I mean, obviously, she was very passionate about that. And it, she, uh, obviously, I'd seem to have hurt her personally in this. And, but I think she'd sort of missed the point I was trying to get at, which is that was why it was interesting to me. Uh, and it was very much in the context of knowing all of that, that this was interesting, uh, that you know that the situation in, fifth, in 16th century Gloucestershire was such that there was not a problem with a black man whipping a white man. If you, but although those are not the terms that the people at the time would have thought of it in. You know that's why it was interesting. And uh, that that white man, John Guy, actually went on to become governor of Newfoundland.
2: <laughs> Bombshell! What? <laughs> okay, we'll just leave that hanging because that's amazing
3: i think it's very important that we all under, know, like aren't find out about this history you know it's not it shouldn't be like sectioned off or segregated in, in, or you know in such a way um, but i suppose i came to it um from a love of the period as well of the Tudor period um, and looking for something different I'd also always been interested in sort of travel and I think I came to it first wondering um, what it was like to be a Tudor sailor sort of rocking up on the coast of Africa for the first time in that encounter uh, but then when I started looking into that I, I quite quickly found uh, this document uh, that was issued by Elizabeth I's Privy Council in 1596 uh, which says, you know, there are of late many uh, Nigars and Blackamoors arrived here in this realm. And I'm like, there are. Where are they? What are they? What were they doing? How did they get here? What was it like, you know? And I looked into that, and there, was, there really wasn't a lot written about it. And so I, you know, my, my mission began to sort of dig into the records, gather them all together, try and find out more.
2: Okay, so obviously the the big challenge here, and interestingly, perhaps ties in with what we were saying about women's roles. Uh, ...in history is that it's sort of undocumented. Uh, The portraits are largely of the men, the the very influential figures, uh, the front end of things. Um, And presumably you must have encountered a difficulty in there being a lack of documentation, um, a paucity of records...
3: Well, I managed to find about 400. Uh, but, <laughs> but I suppose the the poor is perhaps in the detail sometimes rather than that theres isn't there. It is a bit of needle in hay stack work, but it is there. So I found records of Africans here in the 16th and 17th century in, in parish registers of births, you know, of baptisms, burials, uh, the odd marriage. Uh, but I also found them in household accounts, um, tax returns, court records, letters, diaries... Uh, church wardens' accounts, you know, pretty much any, any, any and all documentation of people living in the time. You know, if you scour it, you know, enough, it will follow the odd hint. You you can find something.
2: How do you know from the records you've just mentioned that the names that you're looking at are those of black people?
3: Um. Well, it says that they are. I mean, <laughs> the. Um, I mean, if, I, if so, if you're scanning a parish register, you know, if, some of the lines end up being longer. It's quite easy to find them. It says. It's, it, so it'll say something like John uh, Blackamoor was buried you know, and it, I mean it is difficult, there are difficulties in identifying and perhaps there are many more where it, who may have been of African origin but it just doesn't say that they are I'm stuck with where it says that they are but there, are, you know, there's a range of terms that were used at the time which you know, may be considered offensive today but, but you know Blackamoor Ethiop, Negro which was borrowed from the Spanish meaning black um, but black, Blackamoor was the most common term from an English speaker's perspective. I'm,
2: I'm aware as well, of course, we're dealing with some uh, potentially offensive terms. Uh, were they not in a historical, they may still be uh, offensive now, of course. And I'm well aware that American listeners w- might prefer the term African American to, uh, to to black as well. Although strictly speaking, these are not African Americans that we're talking about. So, so, um, so, what's what's the uh, what's the right terminology of the time?
3: Well, I suppose some of them had spent a little bit of time in, in the Americas, but probably the spanish Americas. but what's the correct terminology? So should we
2: still be talking about African-Americans in this context?
3: I don't know. I mean, the word that was most commonly used at the time was blackamoor. I mean, to me, that sounds so historicized that it doesn't seem, I don't know, I mean, you know, any, I've, you know when I've spoken to, to people of African origin about it, I mean, there's a huge, there's always debates about terminology, but I don't think we should get bogged down in them.
2: Let's link, the, let's link the subject with the location then. We are underneath uh, a statue of two fellows who are kneeling down. They're wearing red robes and uh, they seem to be in uh, sort of a supplicant posture and they're in the arches here at the church. Why have we come to look at these guys in particular?
3: Well, not necessarily for fashion tips. They've got some excellent ruffs around their necks. They look, they look like real Elizabethans. But the reason I wanted to bring you here was that one of the brothers, Paul Baining, who it says here died aged 77 in 1616, 16, uh, was one of the leading privateering magnets of his day and the record show had um, at least five africans in his household between 1593 and 1616
2: i should explain that uh, listener in the background we have the estonian radio children's choir uh, no connection <laughs> whatsoever with anything
4: this is a living church and things go on so this interview just followed their concert and they're off again on the tour
2: we should um, explain, we, we've just been talking about the uh, statue here and we, we wandered in here with this information, were you aware of this aspect of the, the Bainings
4: No, but it's been one of the le- interesting little lacunae that I've always wanted to follow up. Is pre the great and awful period of the slave trade, what was going on because characters appear in the back of paintings and in family groups and they're mentioned in various different uh, records that we have that you've discovered, and more. I want to find out more. <laughs> Tell me more!
2: <laughs> well, that's a pretty good invitation. Let, let's yeah. uh, draw a, a broad landscape, then, of the arrival of black people in the country, particularly with a focus on London.
3: You know, a lot of people assume that Africans only arrived here as a consequence of the slave trade, and it's true that the first English slave trader uh, that we know of was uh, John, Sir John Hawkins, who uh, undertook... Uh, three three main slaving voyages in the 1560s. But if you think about it, a successful slave trade would re- result in Africans arriving in the Americas, not here. Uh, so if something would have gone wrong, if they end up back here, because you know, they go to Africa, they buy them there, they take them to the colonies, they sell them there, and they come home with with some money or some other crops. But um,
2: now, Just so I can understand yeah. the dynamics of that, uh, does that mean then that there was no perceived market for slaves in this country to, say, do agricultural work or something, something of that yeah, sort?
3: That's correct. Uh, so, for example, in uh, the 1540s in Southampton, an Italian man uh, called Corsi tried to sell an African uh, in, you know, in the middle of Southampton and nobody would take him up on it. Nobody wanted to buy him.
2: What was that difference in outlook about? I mean, I, I'm maybe naively assuming that it wasn't an ethical difference or, or an understanding that this was wrong. I don't know why I assume that.
3: I mean, looking looking at, at the way that the Englishmen sort of talked about I mean, it seems that they had, like, maybe one rule at home and another rule abroad. Um, there's this amazing encounter when uh, an English sailor called uh, Collins, who... Uh, was stranded on the coast of New Mexico at the end of uh, John Hawkins' third and most disastrous slave trading voyage in 1568, finds himself in a Spanish mine somewhere in the Americas and is talking to an African slave in the mine and uh, the African says, you know, is it, is it true that in England there are, there are no slaves, that you're all free men there? And he goes, yes, that's right, our country is free. And, and he goes, well, what about John Hawkins then? You know, and he actually knew about all of that, and that's this conversation that comes out in the Spanish Inquisition records, which is amazing.
4: The great dividing line seems to be the, the Armada. Mm. Because once the Armada's happened, money seems to flow into the church well, flow into the country, but we suddenly see it in the church and the monuments. The monuments are quite strikingly different from anything that's gone before. And I just wondered if, if that was reflected in the slave trade, if, there were, if with the defeat of the Spanish we got more of a say across the Atlantic and therefore people would be bringing slaves back here. And the triangular slave trade really sort of took off a bit later didn't it i mean it, it but was it always triangular
3: so As far as I I saw it, you know, after John Hawkins' third voyage in 1568, the Spanish, he's actually been interloping on a Spanish market, and the Spanish decimated his fleet in 1568. He had to leave a hundred of his men on the coast of New Mexico because enough food to take them back home again. And after that, you know, no self-respecting merchant was going to invest in a slave trade voyage because it was a bad investment. We didn't have any of our own colonies then. There was no market for slaves. So I, I looked into the records, and as far as I could see, I can't find any evidence of English slave trading across the Atlantic in the triangular sense uh, until uh, 1641 when the star turns, a ship called the star turns up in Barbados with a cargo of slaves uh, so, but you're right in saying that 1588 was a key year because that obviously the Spanish Armada. But the way I see it, and that is a time when the, the records of Africans in this country and in London, you know, really you know, do rise in that period of the war with Spain between 1588 and 1604. But the money isn't coming from the slave trade; it's coming from privateering. Mm. So, Paul Bane was a private, You know, a private, he owned a lot of privateering vessels. One of them was called the Golden Phoenix. Uh, and it actually uh, it captured a Spanish ship uh, in 1600, February 1600, uh, which had 125 Africans on board. But he, he sold them in Margarita, La Margarita, for, for pearls. Uh, yeah, that's not a kind of classic triangular trait but it's like you capture a ship. So, so all, in the in the in the period of the war with Spain, the English were fitting out lots of privateering vessels. Which a privateer is basically a legal pirate. So it's a you you, you you go out there, but you have a piece of paper from the crown saying it's okay. This is an official crown thing, and I have you have permission to attack the Spanish because they got they they took something off us last year. That's the sort of basic <laughs> principle of it. Um, and you know lots of they were called Letters of Mark. And you know, hundreds of these Letters of Mark were issued at this period. So you'd go out there. But if you captured a Spanish ship at this time, the likelihood was there would be Africans on board. Um, and, and so some of them, you know, and there are various things you could have done with them. If there was a market to sell them on your travels, you might have done that. Mm. But if you didn't, they were still there and, you, you, if they, and they might end up here. In 1590, uh, 150 Africans were brought into Bristol on a, on a prize ship called the Charles.
2: I want to come back to London then, because at the moment we're still talking in terms of black people in that you're uh, mentioning being commodities, essentially, are being viewed that way. At what point do we start to see black people living independently um, and, and not as uh, uh, somebody else's uh, worker or slave or chattel?
3: Well, I mean, it was never legally possible to be a slave in Elizabethan London, but... Uh, so, if you look at the the parish registers here, you can see a couple of the Africans mentioned are referred to as so and so servant, but others just aren 't just but you just have their name and that 's it and we don 't really know what their sort of livelihood was but if you look a bit further afield uh, to another another parish of Saint Olave across the, the the river in Thule Street. Um, over there in the 1590s, there was a man who's recorded as Reasonable Blackman, was his name. And he was a silk weaver. He's listed as being a silk weaver. So he was an independent businessman, who, craftsman, who uh, could support... He had three children, according to the, the parish register. And uh, a bit earlier on, there, we, there's a reference to a a, a man who in Cheapside who made fine Spanish nee- needles... Uh, and refused to teach his art to any, so he had a monopoly on making the fine Spanish needles uh, in Cheapside. So um, he, he must have uh, been able to support a family as well.
2: So people potentially tied in with the rag trade. That seems to feature quite a bit with emigration uh, in, uh, in the country f- for a long period. And you said that that was around about the 1590s. Could we get a general picture, gentlemen, of the area
0: around here at around that time? What was the makeup of the area, what was going on here? The historical records show uh, a lot of merchants' houses in this area, in fact opposite St. Olive's here, uh, in what is now Hart Street, uh, there was a house called Whittington's Palace, not thought to be something to actually to do with Dick Whittington, but a very substantial courtyarded house, and that was not isolated. Uh, Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's spymaster, lived in this area. And just the character of the monuments we have here, the number of merchant adventurers we have on our walls is quite striking. And is that
2: because, is it just the geographic location that we're close to, to where they would have set off?
0: Yes,
4: it, I mean it is. The, this was particularly a trading area, so we got in a lot of people who were seeking sanctuary. Uh, there were the sort of Huguenots and there were those Protestant uh, Dutch, and also Jews sort of moved into this area as well, and they... Possibly helped with uh, Walshingham's information network. But we had m- merchants who went all, all over the place, including James Dean, who is uh, another large monument here. Uh, and he was involved with the West Indies. And you have something to say about James Dean. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I don't have anything to say about James Dean. He shouldn't have driven so fast. But um, but one sentence backwards, you were talking about the 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 Jewish uh, population here, and that was something else I came across in my research. Is that uh, so? In this church, um, there was a well. They weren't allowed to be called Jewish, and they you know were involved in the parish as well because they were trying. They were conversos. You know, they had converted. Supposedly, to Christianity, because we weren 't allowed to be Jewish here at that time, uh, but there you know, what we would have considered jewish there were so there were these three Jewish households in this parish that I know had African servants in them uh, there was Uh, Because So these Jews had had mostly originated in Portugal, but then they were expelled from Portugal. Then they moved to uh, the Netherlands, actually, and mostly Antwerp. But then Charles V expelled the Jews from Antwerp in 1549, at which point we know that Hector Nunez uh, came here and so did shortly afterwards probably his his, his, uh, brother-in-law, Francisco Alvarez, as well as a Mr. Francis Pinto, all three of which uh, you know, lived in this parish. Um, I know Nunez and Pinto were buried here uh, as well, and their their servants. So there was a Blackamoor girl, she was described as a Blackamoor girl, buried here in fi- uh, 1611, I think, from Mr. Pinto's. And Hector Nunez had two uh, female African maids who, who were also buried here in 1588 and 1590. Uh, and we, we also know of other Africans in his household.
2: So in your research, have you come across any accounts of what uh, people thought of seeing a a black person? I'm imagining it must have been quite an unusual thing to see a black person uh, perhaps walking down the street. Is there any record of what people made of that experience?
3: I wish there were. I really do. I haven't haven't found any kind of first-person accounts of wow, I saw this thing today, you know, like, that shows another potential route, because we don't always think of it, but there was actually a substantial black population in, in contemporary Europe at the time, so there was a sort of 10% of the population of Lisbon at this time was was, was black. So if these these Portuguese Jews had come here from Portugal, it's possible that, that, that they, they'd actually, either these Africans in the household had come with them at the time, or later through their kind of trade contacts. And uh, you know, again, with Antwerp, I mean, Ant- you know, the Netherlands, part, the Netherlands was, was part of the Spanish Habsburg Empire at that time. And there was also that population there. So, you know, if that, it's possible that these particular Africans... Well, was, privateering was one way, but another way was coming from Europe.
2: So, so it almost seems surprising that we didn't have a, a much larger black population then.
3: Well... <laughs> Maybe we did, but they weren't written down. Ah, okay. um, but, but, but going on to, so we don't have any, you know, juicy diary tidbits of, yeah. You know, I mean, when the only time I found Africa sort of really mentioned in a diary, it just says, I took Anthony from Guinea to be my servant today. You know, that's, sort of, that's pretty much it. <laughs> so but, uh, that's somebody called uh, Throckmorton. Um, uh, it, I think Arthur Throckmorton, uh, Raleigh's brother-in-law, right. brother in law, Best Throckmorton's brother. Uh, his diaries at the Canterbury Cathedral Archives now.
4: Nicholas Throckmorton's buried over in um, in Saint Catherine Cree, no. just across the way, and he was the he was the king's butler, no. uh, well the queen's butler actually was brother-in-law to Walter
0: Raleigh. Uh, Father-in-law. Father-in-law.
3: Father-in-law. Father-in-law. So this was yeah. the brother So, yeah, it's a very small world. All of these people were interconnected, and, yeah, obviously there were Africans at court at various points in the Tudor period as well.
2: What about if we go a little bit later? I mean, if there's anybody we'd uh, expect to fill in the detail on this sort of thing, it would be Pepys, who, of course, has connections uh, all around this area. H- has he anything to say on the subject?
3: Pretty sure that at one point he took on a, a, a black woman called Nan to be her, his cook, who well, to be a maid? Who did some? Apparently, she was an okay cook. But um, <laughs> I, 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 haven't. That sort of strayed slightly beyond like, the period that I was looking at. But I was, I was going to say that although we don't know kind of that kind of instant reaction of what you, what it was like seeing someone walking down the street. Um, what we can do is look at the the court records, and and, and there is there's evidence of, of how they were treated in the, insofar as um. They, well, there's this interesting story. So Hector Nunes, the Portuguese Jewish physician, I was talking about, uh. In 1587, he goes to the Court of Requests and he says, "I've done something really stupid. I need your help. Uh, I, I bought. He says I bought an Ethiopian nigger. He calls him uh, from a man called John Lax from Foy in Cornwall for four pounds and ten shillings." Unfortunately, now yeah, the Ethiopian refuseth to tarry and serve me. He says, and this guy has basically run away. So he says, now I'm, you know, I've lost, I've lost both my investment and my my servants. So what can I do? And he said, he says, you know, I thought I didn't realise. I thought that the law here was the same as it is back home in Portugal. And you know, but now I realise I have no claim on this because you know this bargain that I did wasn't legally valid. So what can I do? And uh, this is fascinating because it shows, you know, in personal way, the the difference between what was going on in Portugal where they had a series of laws set up called the, I can't pronounce the Portuguese, but or the ordi- basically the ordinances of Manuel uh, in the late 15th century, which sort of ex- explicitly defined what being a slave was and how you would be free or what, what the rules were. We didn't have anything like this here. And in in that absence, there was no legislation to to direct it, and so I, I you know it wasn't actually possible to be a slave here.
4: It was a big thing. In the, this is thirty years ago when I was studying African history, but um, the Portuguese got down into Africa and they and they got round to Mombasa, and there was a big discussion about whether the church should evangelise Africans, but you know were they were they the same as everybody else? Mm-hmm. So and the the church decided yes, yeah. and so then it sort of and that's the really twisted thing is that we carried on the slave trade but whether it was sort of picking up on the slave trade that they discovered in sort of uh, the Indian Ocean and then just sort of it began to transport into the into the Atlantic North and South.
3: Well I think that's a really, another really fascinating aspect of this is uh, going back to Paul Baining again. In his will, Uh, is 1616, Paul Baining leaves £10 to the, well, your equivalent back there, to John Simpson, the minister of St. Olaf's Heart Street, uh, half of which is specifically to be, to instruct his, his, uh, his, his, he calls him his Negro Anthony, uh, in the Christian religion, when he shall be fit to be baptised. And it's clear, I mean, there were quite a few Africans baptised in this period, and um, it's clear that, I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting aspect of the fact that this is post-Reformation. We're Protestants now and we believe that, you know, in order to be baptised, you have to understand what you're signing up to if you're an adult. You know, you have, and they, they, these people get, there's, there's other refer- you know, descriptions where it's clear that these Africans, adult Africans were being educated, they were being taught English and they were being, uh, you know, they will say indoctrinated. They were being, but literally indoctrinated. They were being taught the doctrine. They were being taught the doctrine. <laughs> Justin, that that, that Justin,
2: was, that was a, gr- a grudging consent there from Oliver.
3: <laughs> ta- that sorry, that's just the word that came into to my head. I don't know why. Uh, but you know, and in these Jordan descriptions, it said that they had. Just above your head. It said that they had to be desirous of being baptised. You know, so they. So in that way, I mean, I think. Um, you know, although you know, some people would now kind of perceive that as sort of, I don't know, a, a negative process that it was kind of washing away their African heritage and their African culture, and like sort of forcing them to be Christian. But at the time, you know, baptising someone was the best thing you could possibly do for somebody, you know, because you were, in, you were actually including them in your congregation and in your society. So, uh,
2: so there was a, an, an aspect there of uh, incorporation rather than expecting
4: servitude.
3: Yeah, well, the other thing is, I mean, it, a lot of people in England at this time were domestic servants
4: just that whole concept of the household yeah. not that you own people in such a way but that yeah. they are part of your responsibility and that they, are, they work for you, you provide for them and Thomas Cromwell sort of built up a household in Austin Friars didn't he and it, it was a very considerable place of work but also you know, that he invited people in and supported them.
3: Yeah I mean I think Um, one of the big problems that trying to look at the history of africans in the period we're talking about is we're all so we've we've all we've all we've we've, we're all so kind of blindsided by what happened next i mean the trauma of what happened i mean the transatlantic slave trade and plantation slavery i mean plantation slavery has to be one of the kind of worst if not the worst kind of you know, um, incarnations of slavery and the whole history of slavery because you know some types of slavery are more benign than others. You know there are ones where you can buy your freedom or it's not hereditary or you know you don't, or you're working in a house and not in a field. I mean there there are lots of different variations. But 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 yeah. So what happened next? It was so awful. It was so absolutely awful that when it's really difficult for us to imagine a time before that. Yes. and what might and, and see it in a different context and see what was going on on there.
2: Phil, you have the pages of uh, a book open uh, in your lap. What are you looking at here?
0: Um, I'm looking at uh, the Harley and Society's transcriptions of the registers of St. Olive's between 1563 and 1700 which is a, a, a wonderful book to have so readily at hand because it's got an index. It sets things out systematically in terms of baptisms, marriages and burials and I'm just looking at uh, for example 1590 here and we have an entry for a burial July the 13th, Grace a negro out of Dr. Hector's now who's Dr. Hector actually we, um, he's conveniently nearby in 1591 because he actually dies himself and it's Dr. Mr. Dr. Hector Nunez carried to Stepney to be buried but paid all duties here and then somebody's helpfully added a note that it was Hector Nunez, a, a, a Spaniard who was admitted to as fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons 1554 but I mean there are a lot of entries in the register here with foreign names not just black people um i mean there's another there's a, a someone described as a negro he's just called francisco uh, back in 1590 uh and then a few years later um oh gosh th- there are all sorts of people um D- does the fact that they were uh, afforded a burial here say anything about them um well somebody would have had to pay for that burial um burials were a means of income for the church um there's no specific indication that these people were buried within the walls which was the most expensive form of burial intramural burial that was a greater revenue earner for the church um so one concludes that they were buried in the churchyard somewhere uh this church i think actually had two churchyards there was something called the new churchyard which was across the street uh which i think maybe comes in a bit later than this um but, I mean, there, there are many hundreds of entries for for, for, for the period re- recorded in this book. Um, but lots of foreign names. There's somebody who's described... So, here we go. Uh, 29th of January, Antony described as a Portugali, presumably a Portuguese, um, out of Genning's house. Maybe he was somebody who was staying. And he died of plague, actually, in... Uh, what year are we talking about? 15, 19, f- 3, 4 yeah. So the lo- that was a bad year for plague. Yeah. So... Um, Mm. It's a very very cosmopolitan um, area, this. And it doesn't, it doesn't give the causes of deaths, I notice. Uh, sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. I mean, I, I found a ran- random entry somewhere. Somebody died of a bruise in their back, I saw. But it, uh, well, there's also that extraordinary one where they, the
4: chap has just found...
0: Fell in the street. In the street. Or,
4: somebody yes. docked him on the head and taken yes. all his yes. possessions, and he's just unknown yes. and buried.
3: So... Would you have had to have been a baptised Christian in order to have been buried here?
4: Technically, yes.
3: And and what's your guess on these Africans that were buried here?
4: That they've been baptised.
3: That's very interesting.
0: (laughs) 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 You leave the interviewing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk
1: slash Londonist and click through.
2: Okay, so let's bring this closer to the present time. We've been talking about the 1500s, and uh, my understanding is that the big influx of black population, particularly to London, came with uh, the, the wind rush 1948, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people coming over to work in the health service and uh, to perform uh, roles of a sort of a public service type level. But what happened in between? There's a huge gap going on in there between uh, the, the 1590s and 1948. How how can we talk about black people and their presence in in London and their role in society more generally in that period?
3: How long have you got? <laughs> but um, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you'd watched, you know, uh, Danny Boyle's Olympic opening ceremony, you would have thought that the Africans only arrived in 1948 apart from the color blind casting of a few victorian magnates at the beginning but i mean we know that uh, by the 18th century um when africans would have started coming here as a result as a sort of side product of of trans- and transatlantic slave and the english building up of colonies um then in the 18th century there were estimates that there were maybe I think uh, 15,000 Africans in London um, and they weren't... Out
2: out of a population of... have you got an approximation?
3: I really don't. Look it up. (laughs) If you've got the internet and you're listening to this, you'll be able to look it up very easily what the population of London was in 1800. Anyway, they weren't all, you know, living in terrible circumstances because uh, in 1772 when the Somerset case, Lord, Lord Mansfield ruled on the Somerset case... Uh, where he said that it was not legal for uh, anyone to transport an African out of England against their will. Uh, James Somerset's uh, master had been trying to send him back to Jamaica so he could sell him there. You know, this is, you know, qu- like, feeds into something you said earlier because obviously he couldn't sell him here interesting you know after that decision was made there was apparently a dinner held in london where 200 black men and their ladies attended and there was you know a fee to attend the dinner and these men could afford it so that shows that that there were that there was uh, you know a range of situations going on in in the black population by that that time
2: so looking across the atlantic then i wonder if you've any Sense of how the ongoing slave trade in America was regarded by a population here, which had incorporated into itself um, successful, independent Black people.
3: Uh, obviously, you get the abolition movement building in the, in the sort of latter half of the eighteenth century. I mean, it's not my my period of expertise but I mean for example in terms of the, I mean you get figures like Olendaya um, Equiano who was uh, you know born in Africa, enslaved in America sailed around a bit with various sailors, earned enough money to buy his freedom and but then ended up in England doing lecture tours you know, in, for the abolitionist movement and I mean he was, he was a Christian and he wrote his uh, memoirs and his very existence, you know put that into sharp contrast and you know and he obviously may have helped to change some people's minds about the whole situation
2: and then uh, we have mention of the abolition movement in Jane Austen if I remember rightly I I forget which novel but I'm sure it's in there and uh, what about in the the 1800s how did the black population of London was it developing or was it static or how how was that working because what I've got in my mind is that by the time we get to the end of the 20th century there are areas of London which previously were identified as as particularly uh, black areas I'm thinking especially maybe of Brixton, maybe Tottenham, those kind of areas Um, and even those are now beginning to um, diffuse I think and, and you've got a, a, a bigger uh, you've got a broader ethnic mix going on there um, but what, wh- how did it work? Were there, were there concentrations of, of black population in London or were, were they uh, in and amongst everyone else? How did it work?
3: I mean obviously 1807 was the abolition of, of the slave trade and, and then uh, in eighteen thirty three it was the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, but obviously there were still plenty of people coming and going but i, I 'm afraid that it 's not something i've i 've looked into particularly as the of, you know, the the areas of London that the Africans were living in at that point
2: fair enough I can I can see you <laughs> you're well off your subject area um,
3: <laughs> some you know some historians especially in in the 60s in america um when they were looking into the question of whether slavery or racism came first, like to push everything back to Europe and set, go back to the Bible and you know stuff to do with Ham's curse, you know that one of Noah's sons was smitten in the skin uh, and made, made black because he had done, he uncovered his father's ne- nakedness on, on the ark or something. and so I, d- I never knew that.
0: That's, that's astonishing.
3: Well your, ch- your, 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 your churchman over there is nodding.:
0: <laughs> I have heard such things, yes.
3: The idea with Noah's is Noah had three sons and some of the early theology theory was that that the three sons represented the three continents because they only knew of three at the time europe africa and asia and so the sons of the naughty son the, his descendants must f- perpetually serve the son the descendants of the the good sons and that was a kind of justification for african slavery you know the, the twin slave africans by europeans uh but but so 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 that so that so so there have been historians like winthrop jordan who have kind of pushed that through and said well it was the slave racial slavery in, in the america in virginia and in the rest of colonial america was inevitable because europeans had always thought this way and it's always been like that and that kind of struck me as odd when i first read it and having done this research into this Period where before the English got seriously involved in the slave trade and the colonies, I I feel that it kind of it's like this beacon of hope of that the, perhaps there was this period before where we weren't treating each other quite so badly in that context, which means it's not inevitable and it wasn't always there, and so that we have more chance of hopefully getting to a point after where we also aren't treating each other that horribly and can get on together.
2: Okay, so so we're in the very dangerous territory then of uh, choosing our interpretation of the Bible. Then this, is, is, is that not is that not the, the follow through on your argument? Well, Ignore the bit about ham is what we're going for here.
3: No, but you see, there's a difference between what it actually says in the Bible and what theologians or other writers have tried to gloss in later in later times.
2: You've researched this period, the the early period of uh, black people in the UK, very thoroughly and certainly it's a, an area of expertise but then where where do you go uh, with that is it a case of digging deeper and deeper into the the records there do you come to a point where you've exhausted uh, what is available to research do you start to widen the period of time that you're interested in how, how does that work for you
3: um Well, I wouldn't say I've exhausted them. I mean, I haven't read every single parish register in the whole country. I did try and go for ones which I thought i am more likely to find stuff. So in London, in port cities facing west... Yeah, uh, towards the Atlantic. Uh, but, I mean, I, I definitely don't want to try and read all of them. But I'm hoping that in the coming years that more and more of these sources will become digitised and then they'll be a lot easier to search. And I'm hoping that I've made a starting point where other people who are looking, maybe even looking for other things, can then like, add Add to the growing body of knowledge on the subject, and I hope that it will provoke questions uh, for you know everyone from English literature people studying plays like Othello and all the other plays of the period that have black characters in them, but also uh, historians of slavery, historians of colonial America. Um, yeah, and, and compare compare this information with uh, you know there have been uh, there's other work being done into Africans living here in the long 18th century and um, by Uh, kind of colleague of dr kathy chater and you know there'll be interesting rooms for comparison there um ideally i'd you know put it all up on a website that people could search and they could find you know in a parish register near you um um, and i mean another area i'd be interested in looking into would be the the africans in portraits i've done i've written some i've reviewed the image of the black in western art um for the tls it's like a a big compendium of um all all the images of Africans in in, in Western art really from the sort of ancient Egypt, to the, to the, they've got a projected future volume called The Age of Obama, but I mean it's fact, I think that quite a lot of work has been done but it's been done by art historians and it would be really interesting to be able to have an exhibition of those pictures but, but to do the history behind it so to you've got your portrait but then you to look into the parish registers, look into other records around that and sort of say well, well who actually was that guy? I mean in the past a lot of these pictures have just been catalogued of saying you know, sir so and so with black servant, if you're lucky Sometimes it just says so, so and so with servant, or sometimes it just says so, so and so with no, no mention of the fact that there's a whole other figure in the picture at all. So I think we want to bring those figures into the foreground.
2: That seems highly emblematic. What do you think of this idea, Phil, of getting the parish records online so that people, maybe even people overseas who want to look back uh, a few dozen generations, can do so?
0: Well, I would cheer that as a project uh, because information and knowledge is, is power. And it's amazing what you can tease out of these records just by even a cursory glance, just by the odd word that's thrown into an entry describing someone's occupation or what it was that they died of you can look through a year and you can see how many members of that household died in the year you could start thinking about things like epidemiology and disease it's endlessly fascinating
2: and what about the practicalities we're looking at a hardback tome there with the information that we were referring to earlier in it what is the prospect of getting that
0: digitized For us, I think that would be difficult because as a church we don't have the resources to do this. But if somebody was running a project to digitise the parish records in England um, and Wales and, I guess, Scotland... um, Are we we still allowed to talk about Scotland or are they a separate thing altogether now? We'll leave them in for the moment. That has to be a good thing. That has to be a good thing. Somebody sat down in the early years of the 20th century and transcribed our registers and formed this printed volume with indexes. Yes, of course, this isn't the original. Of course, of course not. This has already been transformed. I mean, the original parish records of all the city parishes are kept at the London Metropolitan Archive, which comes under the city corporation. So uh, you can inspect the original registers if you've got a mind to do it. But it's actually finding a way to access and search the information. I think that would be a real breakthrough if somebody could do that. I mean, at the moment, if you want to research genealogy, and we get a lot of inquiries here from people doing that, particularly in the States and Australia, as well as from, from England, you have to pay a premium to sites like, well, I won't name them, but you have, to, you have to pay quite a hefty annual premium. And I would love to see these things open access, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good thing to go for. I'd, I'd absolutely support it, and we would cooperate I imagine
2: a lot of people might be of a similar mind who are in a, a position similar to yours. I really hope that uh, that's uh,
0: enabled uh, to happen. We're turning now to... Uh, what's the year you've got there? Um, well, I've, I've got the year 1616 and dipping into 1617, um, although with the change of calendar, it's still noted um, some of the entries as 1616, because the new year did me- didn't begin until the 25th of March, confusingly. Um, so, but in... Uh, September, sorry, October the first, Mr. Paul Baining, sometime Mm -hmm. alderman buried in the chancel uh, in the vault by his pew. His statue's in the church, along with his brother Andrew, uh, and it's one of the finest monuments in the church. They're there in their alderman's red robes. Uh, but actually, a few lines lower down, uh, January the 28th, uh, 1616, stroke 17, so actually we're what in now would be the new year, but was still then the old year, uh, somebody called Mark Antony, and he's described specifically as a Negro Christian.
3: And actually, that, if you look in the baptism register, two days earlier, he'd been baptised. The same man. Huh. Mark Anthony.
2: So do, does that suggest then that he was, he was baptised when he was already dead? Is that possible?
3: No, two days earlier. So it's possible that he was baptised because he was already ill.
0: That's quite conceivable.
2: Uh, I mean, uh, two days, though, that's that's very little time to organise a burial, isn't it? Is it, is it possible
0: that oh, on his burial, death... Diff- burials would have happened very rapidly. Oh, I see, OK. Uh, because, I mean, th- they were very aware of decomposition, obviously. Um, and, uh, no, burials would have taken place very quickly.
2: Oh, I see, OK. So this is a sort of a last rites, quick conversion before uh,
0: before the it end of life. We don't know what household he came from. It's not recorded. Sometimes those details are recorded, but in this, in-, in this instance, not. Unless something disastrous happened at the baptism, it all went terribly wrong.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, it just occurred to me that the African that Baining ma- mentioned in his will was called Antony, and whether that was Mark Antony, we don't know. Well, you
0: also wonder whether something nasty was going around the Baning household, because there are Baining <laughs> servants or members of the household uh, die earlier in 1616, and then in, later in 1617 there are references to servants of the household. So maybe there was uh, again. This takes me back to the thing about epidemiology and using these registers um, possibly to study uh, patterns of disease uh, transmission and that sort of thing. Did we not have a
2: similar uh, something similar happen in the um, in the doctor's household earlier? Didn't his his servant and he pass away relatively close together
0: um well it becomes most obvious in in the great plague year of 1666 you can track house households through um but without searching I, I, I couldn't couldn't say but it does highlight how interesting these registers and how useful they are and how they do repay study and was was 16 stroke 17 was that a, a year noted for disease Uh, Not particularly, no. Um, In this book, you will find that entries for burials take up typically a page. Uh, When you get to the years of uh, the Great Plague, uh, the entries run to about five pages. That's 1666. But there were earlier outbreaks of plague, notably uh, 1603-4 and some earlier years, the 1590s. uh, Plague recurred. It was something they knew about as a phenomenon, even if they didn 't understand the mechanisms of transmission
3: you know, the parish registers are a brilliant source resource in terms of numbers, but you know they only give you so much detail, so it 's actually court records that can give you more detail and you know one of the the africans in paul Baining's household that i hadn't mentioned was a man called abel who appears in the bribewell court uh, in the early 17th century as well uh, and I, we don't know what he was charged with but you know they, 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 they get around you know <laughs> you can find them in, in all sorts of sources once you start piecing it together it's
2: tantalizing isn't it
3: mm, tantalizing hmm.
2: Um, maybe could we finish off? I don't know if this is possible, Miranda, but um, from the, the period that we've been discussing uh, black people in London, is there a figure who has stood out in your mind in any way amongst the uh, the, the individuals that you've come across?
3: Well, I suppose one we know a little bit more about, just down the road from here, it's St. Bottle's Allgate, which also has quite a large number of, of references to Africans in the parish registers. Uh, we get this, you know, the, luckily the, the clerk, parish clerk there at this period liked to write much longer entries than all the other guys. And so we have quite a good... Um, record of the baptism of mary phyllis of morisco in uh, 1597 and it says that she was the daughter of a moroccan basket weaver and it you know, is a half page of well yeah a decent amount of text about about her baptism and we learned that she had been you know been in this country for some so i think 10 10 15 years or something before she'd been baptized so that i mean that's an interesting question of sort of well why does she choose to be baptized At that point, you know, and how had she got here, and all these kind of things. But I hypothesize it's because she'd had a change of household, so she'd previously been i think a servant of mr barker or possibly but he but now she was in the household of a seamstress called millicent porter and the only other mention there is of millicent porter is that she'd been up before the church authorities because she they thought she might have been indul, uh, indulging not necessarily, <laughs> indulging in prostitution so possibly she was a very you know the, the strongest converts are sometimes the ones that have turned from sin so possibly she was you know had, had turned from sin and was encouraging her her new made to 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 be baptized as well but
2: i was very keen to demonstrate her conversion if nothing
3: (laughs) so so the record you know says that that she like i was saying earlier that that mary was desirous to be baptized and you know there's and that she knew her you know she said the articles she repeated the articles of faith and so it's just you know it's if she's one i mean like many of these characters she's one of these characters where you wish you you knew more but at least we know a little bit more about her
2: well, I think we've opened up a, a lot of cans of worms here and uh, investigated some of them, but there's plenty more to say on all of the subjects we've touched here. Phil, you've been kind enough to invite us back at some point. To, well, I'm going to keep it under my hat what exactly we're going to talk about because we haven't really mentioned it here, but mm-hmm. it's a good one. So we'll be back at St. Olive's at, uh, at some point not too far from now. Thank you for, ha- for having had us today.
0: Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for your interest in this place, and uh,
2: you'll be very welcome. And I just wanted to say, Oliver, congratulations, because I believe you've been uh, doing
4: your job now 25 years oh, or thereabouts priested 25 years ago this year so um, thank you very much yeah, congratulations <laughs> it's very good to be have you here and it's extremely good to be opening up another little window into the history of the parish here
2: miranda what about your uh, research finally where can people read what you've written and uh, find out more about you
3: uh, well the best place to go is my website uh, just miranda com. Uh, that's got mo- probably more than you're ever going to want to know about me on there. So
2: and you're, you're tweet happy as well, aren't you? And what's, what's your handle?
3: I'm at Miranda Kaufman.
2: Does
0: the church,
2: Phil, have a website? Uh, yes,
0: sanctuaryinthecity.net.
2: And it's well worth a look, e- even uh, just to, uh, to stick your nose through the door and, and have a look at what's going on here. Some beautiful statuary, uh, well worth a look. Indeed. Well, Miranda Kaufman, Oliver Ross, Phil Manning, thanks very much. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you for having me. Thank you so very much.
2: And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Dr Miranda Kaufman. Thanks too to the Reverend Oliver Russ and Phil Manning. Thanks too to Bernie Barclay. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.